So tonight we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. We're continuing the Gospels. Hope we're not going too fast. Hope you're getting an opportunity to read chapters 3 and 4 in Matthew's Gospel because tonight we're going to talk about uh, the person who presents Jesus to the world and then we're going to talk about that presentation, what that looks like, and we'll get into some of that. I don't think I told you this, but if you're making notes, other than what's on your notes, I want you to write these four things down. Very important. Remember we said this, every writer of a gospel, the Holy Spirit's leading them to present Jesus in a particular way. And when you put it all together, you get the full picture of who Jesus is. So write this down. Matthew equals Christ the King. So that's the focus in Matthew's gospel. He's going to focus and the Spirit of God is going to pull out nuggets that show us that Jesus Christ is King. I'm going to give you some secrets to reading the Gospels. You will see it's not that the other Gospel writers have forgotten things or leave out things, but what they put by the Spirit's inspiration guides the theme of what they're trying to say. So here's an example. Remember we said Matthew, Christ is King. The wise men only show up in one Gospel. How many of you noticed that? If you go to Mark's Gospel, they're not there. And it's not because Mark has forgotten. He doesn't need them for what he's trying to do. They're not in Luke's gospel, believe it or not. And they don't appear in John's gospel. They only come in Matthew's gospel because they want to remind us that we have come to worship him who was born king of the Jews. All right? Write this down. Number two, Mark equals Christ the servant. So what Mark's going to focus on in his gospel is the servanthood of Jesus. And everything will revolve around the fact that he is a servant. So what, what Mark leaves out, servants don't need that. So one of the first things you're going to see is Mark does not talk about Jesus came from this, this begat, this begat, this begat, this. What do servants do? They come to do what? Serve. All the pomp, ceremony, star in the sky, magi, shepherds. Servants don't need all of that. They simply come on the scene, they're baptized, and immediately they go to work. So one of the words that you will see, or two of the words that you will see in Mark's gospel is immediately, straightway. And a King James word, anon, which means right away. That's how Jesus moves in Mark's gospel. As soon as he's baptized, straightway. As soon as he comes back from the wilderness, straightway Jairus needs help. Straightway Peter's mother-in-law needs healing. Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom. When you go to the end of Mark's gospel, you will see that Jesus is kind of like a tireless servant. He's just going, going, go here, go here, to the degree that the disciples say to him, Master, see the crowds. We need to take a break. And he says, there are many other cities that I've got to go to. When Mark finishes the gospel, he says that Jesus sent the disciples into all the world, but he himself followed them with signs and wonders following. In other words, he's still working to this day. Here's the third one. Write this one. Luke equals Christ the man. So what I've given you are the themes of the gospel writers. Matthew, Christ is our king. 
Mark, Christ is our servant. Luke, Christ is a human being just like us. So what do you think? Watch this. In Luke's gospel, what Luke focuses on is that Jesus is a man of prayer. That's what he will do throughout the entire gospel of Luke. In every instance that you see him, he's going to be praying. So whereas Matthew says that he's baptized, he comes out of the water, the heavens open, the spirit descends. Guess what Luke says? After he's baptized, Lucy, as he was praying, the spirit came down. That's why when you go to Luke's gospel, you start seeing that before he comes, there are all these people who are doing what before he comes? They're praying. And John the Baptist, his father, is responsible for changing incense in the temple. And while he was changing incense, the, the angel speaks to him. Because Luke's gospel is all about prayer. The woman that was waiting for him for how many years? Anna, she spent all of her life doing what? Praying and fasting. So do you see how that is? And you see the theme. If you're going to survive as a human being, what should you do? Watch. Remember this verse? Men ought always to and not to. What gospel do you think that's in? Luke chapter 18. In all the other gospels, he tells us how to pray. But in Luke's gospel, Pat, the Bible says, and while he was praying, the disciples said, teach us how to pray. That's what Luke's gospel is. Jesus as a man. It is only in Luke's gospel that Jesus is going to pray in the garden of Gethsemane until his sweat becomes drops of blood. Because he's a man of prayer. That's all he does in Luke's gospel. So do this. Tie Luke's gospel to the book of Acts because Luke's gospel and the book of Acts Acts is part two of Luke's gospel. So what do you think the early church does? There you go. And while they were praying on the day of Pentecost, coming on one accord, that's all they do. While they were praying in the house, Peter is being released from jail. And at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and worshiping. Because what the early church is for Luke is the continuity of what Jesus began both to do and to teach. Reminder, Matthew, Christ is king. Mark, Christ is our servant. Luke, Christ is a man just like you and I. John, here's the fourth one, the last one. John equals Christ the Word. So he is, for John, the Word made flesh. And that's what John is going to focus on. John, when we get there, ultimately, is the most unique of all the Gospels. So I'll give you a quick, and then we'll go to our notes. Oh my goodness, are you putting that up as I'm... Come on, everyone, let's give him a hand, because I didn't give him those notes. Thank you. I didn't know it was behind me, but I got also, I've got to confess something to you, just an aside, by the way. Sometimes I fail to check, we fail to check, and the wrong scripture comes up behind me. So I don't know if you know, noticed this on Sunday. On Sunday, I was teaching. We came from John 12, sir, we would see Jesus. And then I said, and that continues in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus. But we accidentally put up Hebrews 12, 21. And Hebrews 12, 29 said, Moses said, which sight was greatly terrible. <laughs> so I didn't see that. I don't know if you guys saw it. But if you see that, could you just give me a hand and say, 
So when I went home, I looked back, I said, this doesn't go with what I was saying. Thank you, Jiva. So in John's gospel, a unique gospel, there are stories in John's gospel that exist in no other gospel. Did you know that? You will not know about Lazarus in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. You will not know that Jesus went to Cana and turned water. That's unique for John's gospel. And there's something I'm going to show you tonight. This is going to help you. These are some secrets to the gospels. The Holy Spirit deals with Jesus in every gospel according as he's being presented. So I want you to get that. The Holy Spirit deals with him according as he's being presented. Can I show you something? Javal, let's show them. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, remember in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is a king. The Holy Spirit will deal with him as if he were a king. So after he's baptized, watch. Then was Jesus, watch this, led up of the Spirit into the wilderness. So watch the wording that the writer, you'll see it clearer when you look at the other Gospels. Because he's a king, the Holy Spirit treats him as if he needs an entourage to go into the wilderness. So the Holy Spirit leads him up into the wilderness. Mark chapter 1 verse 12. What is he in Mark's Gospel? Say it with me. He is a servant. Watch what the Holy Spirit does in Mark chapter 1. Same story. Because he's a servant, the Holy Spirit doesn't lead him up off. What does the Holy Spirit do? Drives him into the wilderness. Did you see that? Because that's what you drive servants. Get the job done. You push them. So the Spirit deals with him according to how God wants us to see him. Luke chapter 4 verse 1. What is he in Luke? He is a man. So in Luke, he's not a king, he's not a servant, he's a man. How does the Holy Spirit deal with our humanity? For as many as are led, so how does the Spirit lead? He is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You see the wisdom of God, the Holy Spirit will deal with you accordingly. He's wise enough to deal with you accordingly. Here's the fourth one, we don't have it. There are no temptation accounts in the Gospel of John. Did you know that? Jesus is not driven into the wilderness in John's gospel. Satan doesn't tempt him in John's gospel. And the Holy Spirit seems to be silent in John's gospel. Can I show you the mystery? When the Holy Spirit seemingly is not there, you should rely on the word. Got it? Because if you rely on the word, you cannot be tempted. So you've got to see what God is trying to say. There's a reason why it's not there in John's gospel. The focus of John's gospel is reliance on the word made flesh. All right, quickly, before we go into tonight's study, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are called synoptic gospels. You may have heard this term before. Synoptic means that these three gospels share Similar stories. Syn, S-Y-N, optic, O-P-T-I-C, S-Y-N, O-P-T-I-C, syn, same optic view. So you can actually take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, put them down on a piece of paper, and cross-reference because they're similar. You can't do that with John. John is a unique gospel all by itself, and perhaps that's one of the reasons why it's last. Scholars have said this, the first shall be, and the last shall be first. John is actually the genesis of the gospel. In the beginning was the 
word. It's the genesis of the Gospels. Tonight, what we're going to do is continue in our studies. Christ is King. We're going to look at number one. And this is so important because I'm going to dovetail into what I believe is God preparing people for ministry. We'll see this in the life of Jesus. Then we can also say this as well. Far too many people are rushing into ministry. And they're not truly prepared. And I'm going to show you how to be effective using Jesus' model for the stage. If you jump up on the stage and you're not prepared, you, chances are you and I, we're going to make havoc of the stage. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about his presenter. Someone presents him to the world. And that person is John the Baptist. That's how we've come to call him. John Baptist or John the Baptist. And we generally call him that because of his initial work is baptizing people. But he introduces himself as the voice, that's Isaiah 40, of one crying in the wilderness. What does he say? Prepare, make his paths straight. So they're, they're also, they also refer to him as the forerunner, the one who goes before Jesus in the spirit of Elijah. He's found in Matthew chapter 3. Here's some background about John the Baptist. I think it's important you know this. John is in fact a Levite. Are we good with that? We know that he's a Levite because his father's name, we get this from Luke's gospel, his father's name is Zacharias. And Zacharias is responsible for changing incense in the temple according to his shift or his course. Mary is also a Levite. We know that Mary is also related to who? Sorry, Elizabeth. Sorry, I made a mistake. John's uh, mother, Elizabeth, I give it away, is related to Jesus' mother, Mary. What does that make Jesus and John? Cousins. They're family. It's an interesting connection because it ties into his priesthood, and we will only see this in Luke's gospel, that there's a relationship. But he's a Levite, and I think it makes sense because it takes a priest to introduce someone who's going to act as a priest. So there's a wisdom in that. We get this out of Luke, not Matthew's gospel. We've got to cheat a little bit tonight, go to Luke's gospel to get this information. And there was in the days of Herod the king, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, his wife of the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. The story goes on to tell you how she comes to conceive. And in this story, by the beautiful story, because when she is somewhat into her pregnancy, she goes or Mary goes to see her. You remember the story? And when Mary enters, what happens? The baby inside of Elizabeth in response and many scholars have seen some sort of connection between that first encounter and their second encounter in the Jordan. It's a beautiful analogy. They were both in water at one point, and they see each other in water at another point, and there's a sense in which we have been here before. We've been here before. It's beautiful how the Lord says it. Here's his message in two parts. This is what John is going to say. A simple message, but people get it. It's a simple message, but they get it. His first words are repent. So he comes out, he screams, repent. And people seem to get it. Here's our definition of repentance. Turn to a new way of thinking. 
So that's what John is telling them. That's what repentance means. People say, well, repentance means to turn around, go in a different direction. True. Repentance means to change your behavior. True. But turning around and changing your behavior cannot happen unless you change your thinking. So repentance has to do with mentality, mindset. So John says, change how you're thinking. It will change how you are speaking. It will change how you're acting repent, number one, and he says it in repent. There we go. Thank you. And then watch this message number two. Why do you need to repent? Because the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. Here's the idea of the kingdom. Guess what? A new way of living is about to break in. That's to me, that's the best definition of the kingdom of God, a new way. And we've got many the rule of God in the earth, the sovereign dominion, all of those kinds. But if you want to simplify it, the kingdom of God is a new way of living. It's heaven lived out on earth. We can find this in Matthew's gospel. Would you agree? When we're praying, Ephraim, we're going to say, Our Father, who art hallowed, watch this, thy kingdom come. What? Thy will be done where? As how we're living in heaven, that's how we should be living on earth. So does that make sense? You can't live that way unless you change your thinking. Because the old way of thinking produces the old way of, of living. So turn around and they then begin to confess, we're willing to do this. John says, symbolize this by being immersed in water. More than just being baptized now, immerse your, yourself in this that is coming and they get baptized with an expectation that something is coming and they start to prepare their minds. Can I go one step further? If we don't prepare our mind for a revival, it will not come. Does that make sense? So when people say, we're praying for a revival, what we should see are new ways of thinking. Because something new is coming and if you don't change the way you think, Here's what God will not do. He will not pour new wine into old wineskins. It will actually hurt the skin. Do you see that? Does that make sense? So the new with an old mindset will actually hurt you. It will hurt me. Because we're not prepared to hold it. The skins break. So he continues in chapter 3. Repent for the kingdom of heaven. It's close. It's near. How God wants us to live. In other words, how he intended us to live it's right at hand. And the first person to live this out, he's around the corner. He's in darkness right now, but he's going to come. He's going to show us how to live out this way of living on the earth. He's almost at hand. He then says, this is his voice. He says, I'm the voice of one. My thought is this. Would it not be fair to say, using the whole idea of recapitulation, that the spirit of John is for today's church? Would you agree with that? Does that? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? If you say to someone, the Lord is coming soon, shouldn't we be operating to some degree in the spirit of John? Meaning that our job in our generation is to prepare the way because we believe he's coming back. So we should be teaching people to repent, change how you're thinking, and also prepare to enter into a new way of living. That's what I think the church should be doing. For this is he that was spoken by the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Voice can also be seen as vehicle. 
Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. That's what we should be doing today. Give me a good amen on that. All right. Number two. Here comes the second aspect of the pre- the first aspect of the presentation. Jesus is going to come out of nowhere. In those days, John is teaching, here comes Jesus out of Galilee. It's like he just surfaces out of nowhere. Here's what you don't have in the Gospels, except for Luke. You have no idea what Jesus was doing from the time he was born till the day he shows up at the Jordan. There's only one Gospel account that will tell us, Luke chapter 2, that when he was 12 years old, they took him up to the temple, they lost sight of him, they went back to find him, and what did he say? He said, why are you searching for me? Did you not know that at 12 years old, I know why I'm here? (laughs) I must be about my father's business. He goes back down with them to Nazareth. He subjects himself to his father and he begins to learn how to build. His father's a carpenter. His father's a builder. I'll repeat that again. His father's a builder. His father's a carpenter. You'll be successful in life when your earthly father is like your heavenly father. Do you understand that? People, part of our frustration is sometimes we serve a great earth, heavenly father, but our earthly father is lacking. So there's some sort of conflict between the one that's touching our lives and the one that's touching our lives. What you see in the life of Jesus is a synchronicity between God who is a master builder and there's no secret that Jesus' father is a carpenter. That's the wisdom of God. So what he learns from his earthly father is exactly what his heavenly father is teaching him. How to build. How to build houses. How to build people. Watch. How to build church. He will only say this in Matthew's gospel. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. So can I tell you, part of that obscurity that you see, it's him learning how to build, how to build people. For 30 years, you hear nothing of Jesus outside of Luke chapter 2. 30 years. Would you be comfortable with that? 30 years in obscurity where no one knows your name. No one calls you for anything. You don't do anything. And he trades 30 years of his life for three years of ministry. Would you be okay with that? 30 years being trained, prepared for three years of ministry. And I learned lessons from that because if you come on the stage being properly prepared, you do not have to spend a long time on the stage to be effective. Make sense? Because for 2,000 years, we are the legacy of his ministry. Still going strong with no sign of letting up. Billions of people have come to know him through the ministry that he left. Three years on the stage. That's phenomenal. So there's something to be said about time spent in private with God over time spent in public with people. 
I think we have it inverted. We want to be on the public stage more than in the private rooms with God. Think about that for just a second. So when Jesus goes to teach his disciples, it's only in, well, I would say predominantly in Matthew's gospel that he highlights the importance of secret places. And when you pray, do not be like the Pharisees that love to make long prayers in public because they think they will be heard. But when you pray, enter into your, and your Father who sees in shall reward you. And when you give your alms, don't tell the world, don't blow a trumpet, but don't let your right hand know what your left, he's a master of secret places isn't he? And when you're going on a long fast, don't tell everybody, I'm fasting today. Pray for me. Rather, anoint your head and the Father who sees in secret will reward you. He understands because he spends 30 years in private. When he comes out, this is what he comes out to do. In other words, when he comes out, can I tell you this? He's ready. I'm not just talking for ministry. He's ready for the devil. There's a difference. He's, he's not just charismatic and he can preach and teach and sing and all that stuff. He is ready both for ministry and for the devil. That, that, that little test that we're going to talk about tonight is proof that he's prepared. So people say, well, you know, so-and-so is a good preacher. He must be prepared. No, it's what you do when the enemy comes that tells the world that you are prepared. Make sense? All right, all right. I'm, taught, I'm teaching myself. I'm not just teaching. So here goes the baptism. This is the baptism of Jesus. What he does, the reason why it's baptism is John's message of changing the way people think and entering into a new way of living, Jesus immerses himself into that message. In other words, he embodies that message. He says, I agree with you, John. Does Jesus really have to repent everyone? No, right? Does he really have to change his mind? No, but he has to join us in what he's teaching. So even though he's exempt from it, he chooses, watch, to join us in it. That's the power of the gospel. He does not have to. And John knows this, doesn't he? John says... You want me to baptize you? Watch this. Watch John. I need to be baptized by you. He says, just allow it to be so now. Because I'm here to fulfill some stuff. You see how he does that? He joins us voluntarily in what we are in. And that will be the entire message of the gospel. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Are you learning anything about ministry now? Those of us that don't want to touch people who are unsavory or don't want to go to environments that don't seem to be kept environment, that's the essence of ministry, going into a thing, joining yourself with something, but not being impacted by it, rather impacting what you join yourself to. That's the essence of ministry. So he immerses himself, Matthew 3.13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee unto John to do what? To be baptized. Immerse me. The people are being baptized. 
They're confessing their sins. I want to join them. In other words, I want to be exactly what they are in. I want to join them. I want to be touched by the feelings of their infirmities. So watch this. I'm not doing ministry for me. I'm doing it for them. Make sense? Please get this. For those of you that say, I want to do ministry. You don't do ministry for yourself. You do ministry for others. And in doing that, God will reward us. So here's what he does. He immerses himself in God's new way of thinking. He testifies, I'm going down in this water, coming up. The way that God thinks, that's how I'm going to think. Not because I'm struggling, but I'm going to leave them an example of how it's done. Got that? Not because I'm a sinner, but I'm going to leave them an example of how it should be done. This is how you should think. So when somebody says, well, where do you get your thinking from? As a Christian, what should you say? I get my thinking from the example laid down by Jesus. Make sense, everyone? So how does Jesus think when someone abuses you? Exactly. You see how that works? You turn the other cheek because that's how he thought. That's how he thought. And therefore, we think the same way. He's also going to immerse himself in God's new way of living. And he's going to live this out. He's going to show us how to live. That's kingdom, living like Jesus. So what is the culture of the church? It's a Jesus culture, isn't it? It's not, watch this closely, it is not Nigerian, it's not Jamaican, it's not European, it's not Zimbabwean, it's not Chinese. It's a Jesus culture, which is a heavenly culture. He came to show us not. This is why I think churches are kind of missing it when we make our ministries about our earthly ethnicity and cultures and, you know, multicultural. And I understand all of that. Yes, there's a place for all of that. But at the highest level, the culture of the church is the culture of heaven lived out on earth. If you go to Deuteronomy 11, you will see that was a promise to God. If they could have kept those laws, God said, if you do this and do this, I will give you the days of heaven on the earth. It's always been God's desire that heaven, watch this everyone, and earth are the same. God's desire is not that earth be something completely different from heaven because Adam is supposed to be the image of God. Make sense? So then, follow this line of thinking and we'll go forward. Adam is on earth as God is in heaven. Say amen to that guys. Don't struggle because he's the image of God. The animals are to earth what the angels are to heaven and to God. Make sense? So the animals serve the God-man, Adam, and the woman as angels serve the God of heaven. And so what God does is he creates as above, so below. It's the same thing. It's one world. One can be seen. The other is unseen. And that isn't foreign. Am I right? Can I show you how, if you study the world, you will actually see all of these truths. Do you know that we use animals in the same way that God uses angels to this very day? If you go on just even social media, you'll see some of the things that people are training animals to do. We use animals to entertain ourselves. 
We may have issues with it, but that's what the zoo is all about. That's what circus is all about. That's what marine land is all about. We use animals to carry us around just, just so you think that that was years ago. When they were coronating the king, did they have horses? We've been using animals to serve us, to domesticate things. We've been using them because that was really God's. The way we're using them right now is a little abusive, but that was God's intent that they serve us as we serve God and angels serve in God as well. Here's the first goal of why Jesus is baptized. He says, I'm going to do this to fulfill righteousness. So the right way of doing things, I'm going to bring it to completion and show you how it's brought to completion. The right way of doing things, period, in life, I'm going to show you how it's done. I'll repeat that again. The right way of doing things, that's what righteousness is. I'm going to show you how it's done. And then watch this. Say with me, everyone. And I'm not going to ask you to do it. I'm going to give it to you by faith in me. I hope you got that. I am not going to ask you to do it. I'm going to give it to you by faith in me. Got it? Sure you got it? I'm not going to ask you to do it. I'm going to gift it to you by faith in me. So in Matthew 3.15, Jesus says, just allow it. The word suffer means allow. Allow, it, allow this to happen right now because it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, he allowed him. He baptized him. And of course, Jesus fulfills every right thing that God expected. Watch this. For he, that's God, hath made him, that's Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. How? In him. Got it? So when God expects righteousness, he expects to see us living in him. And he imputes, that's the word, the righteousness that Jesus fulfilled, God gives that to you in your life. So righteous actions are a gift from God. What do you think you should do? Live out the gift. <laughs> Live out the gift. Just walk by faith. Live out the gift. And every time you're doing the right thing, guess what you say? No goodness that I have done. But Christ living in me is working out the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. Thank God for that. Thank God for that, boy, because I was heading straight to hell in a handbasket. Number two, the second goal, watch, is to be authentically anointed. So now I'm going to show you how to be authentically anointed. And this is that great analogy where the heavens, they just seem to open and the spirit is poured out upon him in bodily form. In other words, the spirit comes and almost sits on him as though it were a dove. Not a dove came down, by the way. As though it moves as if it were a dove and it rested upon him and he is authentically anointed. Matthew 3, 16, can I go there? And when Jesus, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and resting upon him. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings, in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. That same spirit rests upon our lives. 
when we come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That same spirit, if it dwell in us, it will quicken our mortal bodies. We thank God for the Holy Spirit. Joel, I hear God just for one moment. I need everyone, we're going to move into a series on Sunday, even online, just to take 30 seconds with God and thank Him for the Holy Spirit in your life. Just take 30, even online, everyone. Thank Him. If you say, I I don't have the Holy Spirit, just ask Him for the same Spirit that rested on Jesus Christ. I want that Spirit to rest on my life. I want to be authentically anointed of God. Hallelujah. Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the presence of God in my life. Thank you for heaven's anointing being poured over my life. Hallelujah. Thank you for the Holy Ghost. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, Lord. Thank you. It is not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit, saith the Lord God. Hallelujah. And when there's chaos in my life, the spirit of God moves upon the face of the deep places of my life. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. And the church functions by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit authentically, not made up, not contrived. Presence of the Spirit of God resting upon the body of Christ. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Here's why I had you do that. Because if we receive his gift of righteousness and we're grateful for the Holy Spirit, then God will divinely affirm us. This is what we need on a horizontal level as well as a vertical level, affirmation. Remember I told you that his father lines up with his heavenly father. We need this and God shows this to us. He affirms his son before his son enters ministry. You see the power of affirmation? We need it in our lives. Our children need it before they step out into this world. Jesus needed it before he went into the wilderness. The voice of a father. Maybe that's one of the reasons why the enemy silences, if not causes fathers to be absent from the home. Because the vertical and the horizontal should line up. And a son should hear, well done. Thou art my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. This is the third goal, divine affirmation. A voice, I don't know who heard it. The gospel writers seem to suggest that John heard it. The gospel writers seem to suggest that others around heard it. Certainly Jesus heard it. But the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son. I love him. Think about that for a second. Don't just skirt over that. God says of Jesus, I love him. That means I'm going to fight for him. I'm going to be with him all through the journey. I love him. So if you want to see an example of what God loving his people looks like, look at Jesus in his life. So when we start teaching, you know, this angry God that's ready to dangle people over the fires of hell, because that's not him. He's a God that loves his children. 
We've got to bring that back to the body. Does it mean that he doesn't? Of course he judges us. Of course he chastens us because any father that loves his children, what do they do? They correct their children as evidence that they love their children. But at core, God loves his people. If we would bring that message back into the world, watch this, that God loves you no matter what you do. Now nah, you see, you looked down and started writing. You should have said amen. He doesn't love you because of what you do. Because then his love would come, it would go. Some days you wouldn't even feel loved. He loves you. Watch, can I show you? Because that's who he is. He can't do anything else. Doesn't the Bible say that? And God is love. So when you speak of God and you talk about God, you talk about a father that loves his children watch unconditionally. And he shows that first in the life of his beloved son, Jesus the Christ. Here's the, uh, and then here's another one that speaks to us now. According as God has chosen us, where did he choose us? In him, before we were even here. So God had us in his mind, placed in his son, long before we got here. And that means we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Mm. I think this would strengthen a lot of people on their journey, having predestinated us. Did I miss something? Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. Here's the last one. What was the first goal again? Fulfills righteousness. The second goal is, what was the second goal? Say it louder. Authentically. Third goal, affirmation that leads to divinely pleasing. God's pleased with him. When a man's ways please God, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. This is what we want to experience in Christ, that I know that God is pleased with me. And if there's ever a moment that I'm thinking about it, then I'm going to make sure that if I've done something that would engender displeasure, I'm going to try to fix that right away. I need God to be pleased with me. And so this is the last part. In whom I am well pleased. When I study the Bible, I like the word in because he doesn't say with whom. He says, in home. In other words, I like living here. Got it? I like living here. I'm not grieved living here. I like living in Lucy. I like living in Lloyd. In whom I am well pleased. It's a pleasure. So you see the mind of Paul when he says, grieve not the Holy Spirit because he lives within us and this is what he wants to say. I'm pleased living in this house. I'll give you one more scripture then we're going to go forward. This is Ephesians now to the praise and the glory of his grace wherein he has made us acceptable in the beloved. God accepts us. Go to here sometimes when you feel like people have rejected you. God accepts us. Hallelujah. All right.
So now he's baptized. He comes up out of the water and he's authentically anointed, affirmed of God. Heaven is pleased, ready to go. But there's one more stop before he starts to do ministry. That stop is the wilderness. Quickly, I'll show you something. He goes to the wilderness for how many days, guys? 40 days. Because how many years did Moses spend in the wilderness? 40. This is the new Moses. And the new Moses, years become days. You see how you expedite? In obedience, years becomes days. Time is expedited. So this is the new Moses. We're going to watch him in the wilderness. Here's what he won't do in the wilderness. He won't walk around the wilderness forever. 40 days and he goes on fasting. As to whether or not that's an example of how you should fast, I wouldn't challenge you on that. (laughs) If you're ever going to say you're going to do a 40-day fast, make sure that the Holy Spirit has told you clearly, clearly, unequivocally, you've heard his voice. And you'll know what I mean after day four, (laughs) right? And so there's a long conversation about, is it 40 days without water and food? Is it 40 days with just food and some water? That we won't know. But Matthew seems to suggest that there may have been some liquids because when Matthew presents the first temptation, he was hungry and made no mention of thirsting. Here's what this presentation is all about. It's about testing. What's being tested? Get this. His readiness for ministry. That's what the enemy is going to test. Your readiness to serve in that company. Your readiness to serve in that ministry. Your readiness to serve people. And it's going to be based on everything the Father has said in chapter 3. So if he's affirmed you and he's pleased with you and you're the son of God, then these things that I'm going to put before you, you shouldn't struggle with them at all. That's why the enemy uses these words. If thou be the Son of God. The word if there means since you are. Heaven has said this. What does that mean, brothers and sisters? It means that everything God tells you, everything that God speaks that you can hear, someone else hears as well. So every word that you hear from God will be challenged. Every single word. You say, God has spoken to me to do this. That's going to be challenged. God's asked me to go here. It's going to be It's going to be challenging. Here comes the test. So some things I want to tell you. Number one, like Moses, this is Jesus' period of testing because we're in an Old Testament gospel, so to speak. He's going to show you how to come out victorious out of the wilderness. So he's going to be tested. Here's another interesting thing that just came to me. Before the 40 years of wondering, Moses spent how many years in Egypt being trained? Right, 40 years in the palace. How many years in the wilderness being trained by Jethro? 40 years. 80 years being prepared for a journey of one year and 14 days. Agreed? 80 years to take people on a journey. How do I know one year? Because it's one year at Mount Sinai. That's the book of Leviticus. That one year, nothing is wrong. God sits them down, says, I want you to learn some things for one year. The book of Deuteronomy says that it's a 14-day journey from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea. So a man is trained by God for 80 years, for one year and 14 days. Is there a pattern in scripture? God is more concerned with preparation than he is with our presentation. But he's very, because God is a developer. Yes, 
He, in other words, he's more concerned that you don't fail on the public stage. But I'm, I'm, Orem, I'm just, watch, God called me. I got to go. Am I right? God called me. I got to start preaching. God called me. I got to start a church. God called me. I got to start singing. God called you. But there's still a time that God will prepare you. And maybe that's one of the reasons why on the stage, very few people are effective. And when the enemy comes, there's scandal. Got it? Because we're not prepared the way we should. I think if you put this in your notes, he who will be prepared will learn patience. That's what preparation, just be patient. God's going to do it. He doesn't need a hundred years to do ministry through you. Patience, he'll do it overnight if you are prepared and ready to go. Maybe that's what the enemy recognizes, Patricia, that he doesn't want us prepared because he knows when he throws stuff at us, he's got us. Green, they're not ready. It's like eating mangoes that are not ripe. No big amen in a... Wasn't that a good West Indian analogy? (laughs) Matthew chapter 4. Then was Jesus the king led up of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is leading him to be tested. So one of the first works of the Holy Spirit is to prepare the believer. Put them in situations where they're going to be tested. But the basketball guys would say, the Holy Spirit puts me in positions to be successful. So he puts me in difficult places to see what's really inside, to see if I'm ready, see if I'm really ready to go public and be an initial public offering. Here's the key. We're going to learn six keys. We're going to learn the origin of temptation. You're going to see that temptation did not begin with Jesus. It began a long time before him. And we're going to learn that every person that's born of woman will be tempted. And we're going to see how to be successful. So no one in this room, pastors, apostles, congregants, doesn't matter what we are, lawyers, everyone is susceptible to temptation. It's the common thing among humanity. Every single one of us. Watch this. The first humans were tempted. I'm just going to go a little bit out of Matthew's gospel for a minute. The first humans were tempted. Jesus will not be exempted from temptation. And you're going to see how in the same way that the woman was tempted and ultimately convinced the man to succumb, it's that same order. The categorical presentation of human appetites used the wrong way. Temptation. You're going to see how it's going to play itself out. Genesis 3 verse 6. I'm going to show you them here in Genesis, though it's not said. And when the woman, what did she do? She saw that the fruit was good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes. A tree desires to make one. And right there you have the categories. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And we're repeating those over. Those are categorical things. Then you begin to list them according to their categories. And it was there from the very beginning. And you know the story. They gave in to those things. Her, her husband, and they did eat. We're also going to learn, number two, the universality of temptation. It's everywhere. No one is exempt from it. None of us. Sing for a... Sing for a 30 hours straight, you're going to be tempted after you stop singing. 
That's what the devil does. That's one of his names. He is called the, the tempter. And Matthew's going to tell us, and when Jesus went and he was hungry afterward, the tempter came. So watch. When you are tempted, please know this, the devil is doing his job. So let's give him at least some credit for being faithful. <laughs> I think he's, sometimes he's more faithful than we are. That doesn't sleep day and night, seeking whom he may devour. We could learn some lessons from his consistency. Never drops the ball. Always about <laughs> his father's business. <laughs> I have to say that softly because I know someone's going to put something in the chat. Here's what we got to say. If Jesus was tempted, everyone will and is tempted. Tempted in all points just as we are yet without sin. So don't think it's strange when you're being tempted. Don't think it's strange when, you know, that looks good to me. That's leading me away. You know, that's appealing to me. That's a part of this process. It's not the temptation that God is looking at. It's my response to the temptation that God is measuring. Got it? So, well, uh, these thoughts came in my mind. I must have sinned. No. It's what I do with those thoughts beginning within. If I play it over and over and start to smile about it. <laughs> or if I then act it out in word. Or indeed, I'm yielding to, to temptation. Here you're going to see them. Watch this. Everything that's in the world, everything sits in these categories. Please hear me, everyone. Nothing sits outside of these categories. Say fornication, it sits in a category. Pride, whatever it is, lying, it sits in a category. All that is in the world. Number one, the lust of the flesh. The word lust there can mean desire. The lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these are not of the Father, but they are of the world. If I can learn how to master the eyes, the flesh, and my own ego, I'll be successful. So if I can learn how to master these, can I say gates, and control them, I'm going to be successful. When I sin, I've fallen into one of these categories. No questions asked. All right, that's, it's just universal. The, the third key that we're going to learn is that Jesus is going to acquaint himself with the same thing that you go through. But if you study closely, you will see that he experiences it on a higher level. Because a sinless person to overcome temptation, it takes more than a sinful person. Did you get that? So he, he himself is not a sinner. So it takes more to overcome that than the person who is a sinner. But he's going to show us that whatever you're going through, I have gone through that myself. Therefore, I can help you. <laughs> Got it? So when you pray about what you're going through, I know what it is that you are going through. Because I've gone through it myself that's the confidence that we can have when we pray he knows what i feel can i quote the scripture now seeing then that we have a great high priest 
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may experience grace to help us in the time of need. For we have not a high priest who cannot be touched by the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He can help you. He can help me. Because he knows exactly what I'm struggling with. It's personal. It's experiential for him. He was tempted as we are. So this is just to encourage the body that he can then help us with compassion. This is how I know that when I'm, if I'm sincere and I go to God, he does not use judgment. He uses compassion. Do you see the difference? Because he knows what I'm going through. He can feel what I'm feeling. So he works with me compassionately, not judgmentally. People who are judgmental, in most cases, are not experiential. You get it? Because anytime you know what someone's going through, you operate with levels of compassion. It's a whole different approach. I know what you're feeling because I've been there myself. So when somebody comes and says, I want to commit suicide, if you've never been there, you might be telling, why would you do that? But if you've been there, you can say, I know exactly what you're going through. I can pray with compassion for what you are going through. This is what I quoted earlier. We've got a high priest. He can be touched. He was tempted, but he was without sin. Verse 16, we can come boldly. You don't have to be ashamed to come to God. Just come. You'll obtain mercy and find grace anytime you're in need. Jesus has made that way possible. Here's the fourth key. We're almost home tonight, by the way. The fourth key is, this is what temptation is. It's presented as categorical appetites. But the reason why there are lusts is these appetites, which are normal and natural, when they are lust, they're used for selfish use. They're not used to glorify God. They're used to fulfill something within me. This is why I thought, that, no, everything God gives to us, we're supposed to use it to glorify. I'll give you a scripture to struggle with. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So even when you're eating food, you're supposed to do that to the glory of God. Everything is for his glory because he's given all things to us for his glory, his good pleasure. We turn them around and we use them only to gratify ourselves. Then they become lust. They're categorical, ap categorical appetites. Here's the first one I told you, the lust of the flesh. These are bodily appetites, but we're just using them to glorify ourselves. If you want to see practical ways, I've seen people all the time, and I sit there and I say, but geez, I've seen people buy food and just start gulping it down. And I say to myself, but why would not you just say thank you? Think about that. Someone, you may say, well, I paid for it. Someone provided it. And one of the ways that you know that you are not using it for selfish use is you reciprocate some measure of thanksgiving to the one who's provided it. Hmm. Okay. All right, my food, I know, I know, my chocolate bar, I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Until it gets stuck in the wrong windpipe. 
Then you say, Jesus, Jesus. And then he says, well, why didn't you say something? And when he had fasted 40 days, he was hungry, had a natural appetite. The enemy came to him and said, if you be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Is there anything wrong with that? doesn't seem like anything's wrong with that. It's what it's being used for. It's turned around for selfish use. Here's his response. He says to him, it is written. Man shall not live, that's Deuteronomy 6 and 4, by the way, by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. We'll come back to his responses in a few minutes to show you how to overcome temptation. The second one is the pride of life. These are aspirational appetites. Pride. I want to be. I want to do. It's ambitional appetites, aren't they? And the problem with this, Lloyd, is we're wired for glory. I want to be the head of this company. I want to be, I want to be the head of this means I want to be, I want to be, I want to be a superstar. And that and it's funny how we use terms like these today. Such and such is a superstar. Aspirational appetites. The enemy does this to him. He takes him to a holy the holy city, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, and then tells him, Watch this. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. Because you are so great that there's no way that God's going to let you fall down. He's going to do something. <laughs> Can I show you something just so you see something? And the devil quoted the Bible <laughs> as part of this temptation. For it is written. Is it not written? Psalm 91. <laughs> that, this guy's good. Come on, give him some credit. This guy is good. He uses the Bible to tempt him. And I'm saying to myself, Gee, he, will, he will give his angels charge lest you dash your foot against a stone. In other words, make God do what you want him to do. That's an interesting place, eh? Put God in a position where he has to move. Force his hand because he loves you. That's a powerful thing. Put yourself in a position and then say, God, you got to help me. Got to get me out of this situation because it's written and Jesus responds to him. Don't put God in positions where you force his hand. That's his response. Don't put God in a position where you're going to force his hand. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. We'll come back to that in a minute. Here's the third one. The lust of the eyes. And he's going to do that to him. And he's going to show him some things. These are the visual appetites. Things that we can see. And we say, I want that. I want that. I'd like that. That looks good. That looks good. I'll take that. These are the visual appetites. Things that we see. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 4. The devil takes him into a exceeding high mountain. Now here's what's going through your mind. And it goes through my mind as well. I don't have answers. How was this taking place? Watch, think about it. Is he literally taking him there? Is it happening in his mind? Do you follow what I'm saying? Because if you don't read it carefully, where was he when he was being tempted? Say it with me. Say it again. But the enemy takes him from the wilderness up to the pinnacle of the, where's the temple? Jerusalem. Is it happening literally? Is it happening in his mind? 
You see what I'm saying? I don't know the answer, but I suspect that these things are happening. I suspect that the battle, when it comes to temptation, is in the mind. Because it is with the mind that we serve God. And he will keep us in perfect peace whose mind. Let this mind be in you which was also in Where's the victory? Not in your actions. The victory is in your mind. But that only makes sense because we told you that part of John's message is change the way you are thinking. So part of victory over the devil is changing the old mindset. Right? Be transformed by the renewing of your that you might prove what is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. Don't play with the mind. One of the ways you can test your Christianity is just look at your thinking. Because as you're thinking, so Proverbs 23 verse 7. Whatever you're thinking, that's what you are. The devil takes him to an exceeding high mountain, shows him, this is phenomenal, all the kingdoms of this world. And says, watch this. Don't struggle with it. And all the glory that's associated with them. And watch what he says. And says unto him, all these will I do what? Read it loud everyone. Will I? Is he talking the truth? Of course he is. He wouldn't be offering him something he can't deliver. Because what if Jesus said, I'll take it? I'm just joking. (laughs) Of course he can. Because the kingdoms of this world are under his authority. And Jesus is from another kingdom. And what he's trying to do there is he's trying to get him to abdicate the kingdom from which he's from for a lesser kingdom. You see how that works? So the enemy can give you power and authority in this world. He can set you up. People have sold their souls to him for fame and glory. He has the authority because because when Adam sinned, he abdicated the kingdom. Gave it over to the one that was tempting him. And now the devil becomes 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 4. If I'm right, you can put it up. If I'm wrong, don't put it up. He has become the God of this world. And he blinds the eyes of the minds of those that would believe. He was going to give Jesus. And and what, what country do you want? What record contract do you want? How much money do you want? He's going to give it to him. And I love Jesus. Uh, did you get it? Did I get it right? Put, put it back up there again. In whom the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest they would see this light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the image of God, and it would shine in their lives, and they would say, I'm in the wrong kingdom. I'm serving the wrong master. Let's go a little further. We're almost home. Then Jesus saith unto him, It is written. Well, first, get the... <laughs> this is the last one, fellas. In other words, he's saying, This is the last time you and I are going to talk. Get thee behind. It is written. Thou shalt worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. In other words, whatever promotion comes in my life, I want it to come from the hand of the God that I worship. 
Say amen to that. So then this only makes sense because Jesus understands the word. Promotion comes not from the nor from the West, but promotion comes. And what I'm waiting for, my father is going to give it to me. So when Matthew's gospel ends, Jesus says this to the disciples, all power is given unto me, both in heaven, my father gave it to me. Those are legitimate gifts that God has given to me. No one controls those gifts. And I don't have to sell my soul for what God has given to me. And he passes. Here's the fifth key that I want you to get. Temptation is overcome by scripture. He who knows little scripture will struggle with great temptation. I promise you that. Because it only it's only overcome by effective use of the scripture. So when you know the scripture and how to use it, you can respond. And you're really responding to your mind as the enemy's playing with your mind. You're not really speaking to him. I know you are indirectly, but you're using scripture to talk to yourself. I am this according to scripture. I can do this according to scripture. That's the term. It is written. In other words, it's established. This is how things work. This is how it's going to work. This is the new way of living. This is the new way of thinking. It's overcome by the word of God. Here's level one on that. When you are tempted, remember what is written. Say amen to that. That's Whose job is that? It's the Holy Spirit's job to bring to my remembrance all that I have studied or read. If I haven't studied anything, he has nothing to pretend. Fair enough, guys. Say, so what did that scripture? The Holy Spirit said, you didn't read that. I can't remind you of what you didn't read. That's why he brings to your remembrance. That means you knew it before. He's just simply reminding you that you can use this in this moment. That's the functionality of the Spirit. My job is to do the initial work of putting it in first. So I read, I study, give yourself to reading, to study, and then you give the Holy Spirit something to work with when the enemy comes and tries to pull a move on you. That's the first level. Here's the second level. When you are tempted, this is higher now than the first level. When you're tempted, remember where you are. Does that make sense? Because I'm in Christ, that's how I can overcome. So first level, remember what's written. Second level, which is a higher level. Wait a minute. I'm in Christ. I'm in he who overcame temptation. So therefore, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me in this moment of attack. Remember whose you are and who you're in. That's the second level. I'm a child of God. I'm a son. I'm a daughter of Jesus Christ. And so when I'm tempted, I remember where I am. And here is the last key. We're finished. Destiny altering temptation is seasonal. When the enemy came to tempt him, he was really challenging his destiny. Why are you here? What are you going to accomplish? So it was a challenge to his destiny. Please know this. The reason why you can't overcome temptation is seasonal. If you get through it, he has to depart. 
When we get to Luke's gospel, you're going to see, and the enemy leaves him for a season. He's coming back on another level because you've passed this level. If you don't pass, if I don't pass, we simply stay on that level and he comes with the same temptation again. That means we're back in grade one. But once you go to grade three, here's what one preacher said. New levels, what do they bring? Say it louder. New levels bring new devils. And he comes again at another point, at another point. Can I show you in Matthew's gospel when he came again? You, this is going to shock you. They were at a place called Caesarea Philippi. And he asked them, he said, whom do men say that I am? And the disciples said, John the Baptist, some of the prophets, that prophet. Peter said, thou art the Christ, son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood, give you the keys, build my church. Now the son of man must go to Jerusalem to be crucified. What does Peter say? Not so, Lord. What did Jesus say? Get thee comes again. Watch closely. In a different form. In a different voice. Are you following what I'm saying? This time when he came, he came through the very voice of one that was walking with him. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou savorest not the things of God. Do you know what Peter said, right? You, how many people know what Peter said? How many people know what Peter said? The reason why you don't know is because Peter said nothing. Do you see what I'm trying to tell you? In this generation where people don't want to be corrected, take your example. When Jesus corrected him, watch publicly. Not this, Peter didn't say, well, why are you going to talk to me like that in front of all the disciples? Could we go to your office? We could have gone to your office. You could have told me that in the office, you know, this is just totally disgraceful. I'm not coming back to this ministry anymore. Talk to me like that in public. Ugh. In public, Peter said nothing. You see how you prepare yourself? He who can take correction can also give correction. We're doing some things, this generation is teaching us some things I think that are wrong in this sense. That people are so sensitive today that they don't realize the strategy of the enemy is to remove us from all correction. So there is a, a, a bunch of uh, students in one of the grade 6 schools or grade 7 schools here in Toronto. Mother's Day is coming up this weekend, right? So this, the poor students, Joel, they put this, you know those signs that you put on wheels, you could put them in the lawn? They put these signs, they got words in them, and they said, this is what they said, they were just thanking, you know, honoring moms, the student said, life doesn't come with a manual. Life comes with a mom. Do you know that people driving by wrote the school and said, what is that? Tell those kids to take it down. It's exclusionary. <laughs> and the poor kids, according to, they, were, they had to take it down, figure out what to say. And I said, come on, guys. Give them a break. They're not in your arguments. They're not politicking. They're just simply recognizing whether you like it or not. Whether you want to be a dad mom or a mom dad, that's your business. They're just simply saying, Mother's Day is coming. We want to honor moms. It's a hypersensitive generation. And in that generation, people don't want to be corrected. And that's, can I say this? That's an avenue for the enemy. 
It's an avenue. And because people don't want to be corrected, love sometimes isn't shown. Hear what I'm saying. Matthew 4, the devil leaveth him and angels came. You've deserved, you've earned the right to be ministered unto and to be strengthened. So in my thinking, when God sees you being tempted and it's drained you down, it's worn you down, but you pass the test, here he comes to build you back up again. Said you've emptied yourself surviving that temptation. Angels come to minister to him. Here's my last statement. And Joel, you can play something soft. We'll take some questions or some thoughts. Maximize your off-seasons in those two levels. In other words, when the devil is not tempting you, don't fool around. When you're not up under pressure, when you're not feeling tempted, get down in that word and bury some things for what's coming. When you're not being tempted, just keep reminding yourself, I'm in Christ. So in the off-season, when things are going good, we tend to make this mistake. We just have fun. But he's coming again. So take advantage of the, the downtime. And let's get into this word. I'm going to study. I'm going to try to memorize scripture. Because I know that he is unrelenting. And though I pass this grade, he's coming for me in grade three. And when he comes, he's going to find nothing of himself in me. In Jesus' name. I told you I'd give you a pattern. Here's the pattern for your life. Just know this. Coming out of the presentation, the preparation, the time spent in private, overcoming the temptation. Here's the pattern. As he was, so are we in the world. Whatever he walked through, you're going to walk through it as well. I'm going to walk through it as well in him. That's what the Bible says. As he was, so are we in the world. If he was victorious, we can be victorious. Someone asked me a question. Think about this. Pastor, do we have to sin? You know what the answer is? We don't have to sin. You agree with that? You look like you, you want to question me. I simply said we don't have to sin. doesn't mean that we don't fall into it. But because of him and us being in him, we don't have to succumb to the enemy. But with every temptation, listen, God has made a way of escape. In Jesus' name. Amen. That's the presentation. We're in our Q&A. We've got a few minutes. I would love to hear your thoughts. I would love to answer your questions, even online. Ephraim, if anything comes through, you can let us know. But I'd love to hear your thoughts, if any. Or any questions, every temptation. To Listen, Lloyd, please. There are microphones Sir, to the right and the left. You can in the chat as well. Blessings on Sonia. She departs in Jesus' name. Check if your microphone's on, and if it's not, just flip it up. You're good to go now. Yes, Pastor. The question that I have and, and the, the concern, it would maybe a comment also. Yes. I find it very fascinating the fact that um, John the Baptist's baptism was unto repentance, yes. right? Yet we know Jesus had no sin. And so if his baptism was unto repentance, mm -hmm. it got to be a reason why Jesus was baptized. That's right. I think I know the reason. Go ahead. But 
At the same token, I find that um, for Jesus to be baptized by someone mm -hmm. who is less than him, yeah. was not a virgin birth, mm -hmm. okay, was a man, yes, born of a woman, yes, not a virgin. Can you yet, imagine that, Lloyd? Yeah, a sinner. I know. Baptizing yeah. the sinless one. Right. Do you see the level of his humility? Do you see the condescension? You said you knew the reason you got it. Yeah. Whatever they were in, I'm going to join them. Yeah. That's the level of humility. That's the level of service that Jesus, and this is what Paul says, who being in the watch, form of God, form Philippians of God, yeah. 2, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Equal with yeah. God. What's the next verse? But made himself, himself of no. no reputation. And being found in the fashion of a man, he humbled, humbled himself, himself and became a servant. servant yeah. Being found in the form of a servant, he humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross. Oh, there has to be something else after that. Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in earth, of things under the earth. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ deserves to be Lord. Do you see the power of humility? When people are trying to make a name for themselves, go down, humble yourself. God will lift you up, even if they walk on you. Can you imagine? That's why John was smart. John said, you come to me? I have need to be baptized of you. He said, no, 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 John. Just let us do this for now. I'm on a journey downward. So in the kingdom of God, hear me on this one. The way up is down. And many of us don't know this. Many of us want to be served. Many of us want all this treatment and entourages. But if you follow his example, he served. That's what I think we've got to get back in the body of Christ. That we serve to the degree that whomever, however great we think we are, we set that aside to serve, trusting that God, in the process of time, would raise us up. But I didn't make that up, right? He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. He that exalteth himself shall be abased. Who do we want to follow? What's destroying our world and the body of Christ is pride. And it always goes before the fallen destruction. And my last question. Yes, I love it. My understanding of the mm. wilderness is a place that is inhabitable, right? Say that again, Lord. A place that is inhabitable. It's a not a place that you can live. You have maybe no water. The place is all bushes, shrubs, and all that. What place are you it's talking about? Wilderness. In the, the wilderness. wilderness. Yes. You know what? How many were on the trip to Israel last year? You got a chance? Anyone remember when we were we, we were there, we went, we saw it. It's just like mountains. It's like this huge expanse, almost like desert. The Judean world. It really is a desert place. So, so my, my question then, um, John was in the wilderness mm -hmm. preaching. Yeah. Could it be in his mind that he saw the people repent and be baptized and all of that? In his mind that he saw the people as wilderness mm -hmm. and not necessarily 
Because it's strange to me to preach in a place there's no one there. So the message, how would you relate that? Well, you know what's interesting? Whatever, however John did it, he started preaching in the wilderness. Guess what the people did? They went out. <laughs> I, I think this, I don't have all the answers. I think John's environment ties into his message concerning the state of the people. Right, that's what I think. So from the place that he's preaching, he's actually telling them where they are spiritually. Right. Yeah. So they are in fact in the wilderness. He says, I'm the voice of one in the wilderness crying. crying. crying yeah. He who can hear that. In other words, if you can see yourself, you'll gravitate to this message. Then he takes them down to the Jordan and he begins to baptize right. them. So I think for John, it's a literal place that he's in and he literally baptizes them as they come. Yeah. So maybe when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It means if I can see myself, my need, my state, chances are I'm going to come and be drawn to this message. When a man and woman can see their spiritual state before God, after hearing a message, I'm in this boat. I'm going to come to God. Do you know that even the Pharisees came? We didn't read this tonight. And the Sadducees, some of them came. And the publicans came. And the soldiers came. And he told each of them what they needed to do because they recognized, I'm missing something. There's something lacking in my life. I don't know about you, but that's how I came to faith, you know. God pushed me into a corner. I realized, you're going nowhere with your life. If you continue down this road, you're probably going to end up dead yeah. or in jail. It's that recognition that spurs on now a need. God unleashes faith. I respond. He does the rest. Thank you. I don't know if anyone can testify. That's how I came to faith. Thank you, Lord. Glory to God. My son over here, and then we'll stop. Yes, sir. Okay, so um, I just want to make a statement to compliment yes. what you said. Um, so as the Holy Spirit has been working on me, I've been learning a lot about fasting. Yes. And it was really great that you spoke about that and you spoke about the loss of the flesh mm -hmm. and about loss in general. And a lot of people, a lot of believers don't realize that, you know, food is basically their God. And as you said, a lot of people eat and don't give thanks. Right. And not even just believers in general, but a lot of people worship food. And sometimes that stops God from answering mm -hmm. your prayers because mm -hmm. you are allowing food to come between you yeah. and God. Yeah. Even if you don't recognize it. Yeah. Because a lot of people yeah. comfort themselves with food rather than even just running to prayer or you know, reading the Bible. You just said, do you know that in America, certain foods are called what? Comfort food. <laughs> Mac and cheese, comfort food. So, so when people are in comfort, <laughs> rather than going to God, they go to Harvey's. That's interesting. Jesus' response is this. Here's his response. If food is what sustains you, you're still missing it. He's not saying don't eat, but he says your true life and its existence is by the bread of God. Man shall not live by bread. What's the next word? Alone. But by every word, your Bible is a menu all by itself. Did you know that? Sadly, at times, we can, I can starve myself in the wrong way while still filling up in the wrong way. 
So it's just a matter of prioritizing. What do we hunger for most? What do we desire to eat most? In John's Gospel, my son, when Jesus comes, he introduces himself to a group of people in the wilderness that was just raving because he made, he multiplied fish and bread. He said, that that you eat, it's not really what I'm about. I am the bread that came down from heaven. He that eats this bread shall never die. I think that when we as a body hunger for scripture, that's why we don't want to you know, accuse anyone, but if you really think about it, Bible studies should be the largest services in our ministries globally. But we then tend to see that Bible study is not the worship service and the power of worship is based on the consumption of word. So we sort of have it backwards because the power to worship comes from that explosion of the word within. So if we begin to fill environments, whether it's small group studies, individual Bible studies, collective Bible studies, and that word of God gets inside of us, then when we go to worship, it explodes out of us. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Thy word is a light unto my feet, a lamp unto my pathway. Order my steps in your word. Come, let me pray with you. Everyone rise to your feet. Come, let me pray with you. Just because you asked that question, just because you are curious, that whenever you're fasting, Ephraim, just take this out of my hand. When I got saved, I was about 22 years old. One of the things they taught us in the early church, I've got to go back there because I've been a little delinquent. They taught us the power of fasting. I go to work, drive a forklift and be fasting. Work in the warehouse and fasting. My parents thought I joined a cult. But there's something that it produces because you're not just starving yourself. You're actually eating the right diet. Because when you fast, you turn this plate down and you open up this plate. Then what you're doing is you're feeding the most essential part of yourself, which is your spirit. And when your spirit is stronger than your flesh, the devil can do nothing with you. When your flesh is stronger than your spirit, he's got you. But in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would find days of fasting. That you would find secret places with the king. That he would pour the bread of life into your spirit. That he would feed you on the finest of the wheat until your spirit is built and fortified in him until no weapon formed against you can ever prosper in the name of Jesus may you be filled to overflow with the spirit of God in Jesus name amen when you feel the prodding of God to fast you don't have to marathon everything. You don't have to tell God, I'm going to go on a 20-day. Say, Lord, I'm going to lay down my plate. And you start 24 hours. I'm going to do it well. Because fasting is not really about duration. It's about how effective a time we spend with God. And he begins to increase that. He might even tell you, give me seven days. You find yourself doing seven days before God. In Jesus' name. Come on, slip your hands up, everyone. 
Maybe what we'll tell God is we'll renew our time of fasting. Maybe what we'll do, I hear you. Maybe we'll have a time when as a body we fast as a church. Maybe we'll bring that back again where we'll do a week of fasting as a congregation before God. In the name of Jesus Christ. That when the tempter comes against everyone in this place, he will know that we know that it is written in the name of Jesus. I pray that no weapon, no power, nothing in the mind, nothing in the psyche will ever dominate your life. In the name of Jesus, you will overcome every temptation. In the name of Jesus, Satan, get the ends. We shall worship the Lord our God, and Him alone shall we serve. In Jesus' name.